Welcome to On Scripps Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscriptstudy biblicalworld. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Biblical World Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College. And in this episode, we have a very special guest, Eric Klein, to talk about the year 1177 BCE. If you're wondering what happened in that year, well, civilization collapsed. And he's going to talk about that and his work as a scholar, historian, archaeologist. So I think you'll enjoy this. Um, Please uh, let your friends and family know about the podcast. We uh, appreciate all the the work that's gone into this and, and want to share it with as many people as, as possible. So maybe you could, for instance, wrap up a present at Christmas. I know it's a bit early to think about that. Okay, for uh, Halloween, instead of candy, you could wrap a link to the podcast in a candy wrapper and give it out to kids. And I think they would love it and, and really appreciate that. Uh, I'm sure that would work. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for uh, the work that Ed Hackey does in producing this show and um, for all the, the co-hosts who um, have, have put in time and, and work behind the scenes and doing the interviews. And thanks to Rebecca Terhune for her work in marketing and media. If you'd uh, like to donate to the podcast, we're not going to stop you. You can go over to onscript.study forward slash donate and find information there. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back, OnScript Biblical World listeners. Today we have uh, an exciting interview. I'm Kyle Keimer, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Mark Jansen, and we're going to be talking with Professor Eric Klein. Now, this is probably a name that many of you are familiar with out there because he has a number of, of very popular publications. Uh, Eric is a professor of classical and ancient Near Eastern studies and of anthropology at George Washington. He's also the director of the George Washington University University Capital Archaeological Institute. And in addition to excavating throughout the world, largely in the Mediterranean, Egypt, Near East, Greece, he's also excavated in the U.S. and additional places for some 30 years. And so he has a lot of field experience and has a number of of publications, popular books. And we're going to be talking with him today about some of his more recent uh, uh, publications that are out there. And so perhaps you've you've come across some of these. He's written on everything from international trade in the Bronze Age to Jerusalem and the history of Jerusalem to uh, the site of Megiddo, Armageddon, uh, everything else from the Trojan War, 1177, the year civilization collapsed, kind of the history of archaeology. So uh, Eric is a real polymath, and we're really honored to have him here today and to be able to kind of pick his brain about um, the past and, and the present in the future of, of biblical studies, archaeology in particular, and, and what we're doing here. And so with all that said, Eric, thank you for being here. I want to turn it over to my co-host, Mark, who's going to kind of fire off the first question and get us going. Yeah, again, thanks, Eric, for joining us. Um, we'll obviously get to some of your more specialized um, works and so forth, but I wanted to sort of start with some a big picture question because I think one of the things that you've really developed a really strong um, following for or a niche for is is really taking archaeological data and helping it become more popularized. Like how do you how do you do that? What are some effective strategies for helping 
that you use for helping non-specialists understand archaeology without watering down the data? And, you know, why do you think scholars have often struggled to make it sort of more appealing? I think that's a, a really important topic that I mean, we don't spend enough time in the field doing. Yeah, this is these are excellent questions that I think uh, deserve some good answers. But first and foremost, let me thank you both for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to our conversation. Um, some of the effective strategies, uh, look, it's going to differ for each person, right? We've each got our own voice, and we know what works for us. Um, so I can only say what, what works for me, but I come at it from a kind of a two-pronged approach. One, I basically pretend or envision that I'm talking to the grandparents who, you know, know me, love me, are extremely enthusiastic about what I do, but have no concept about it except what they've heard on TV or seen on the internet or whatever, which is frequently wrong. So um, I basically envisioned it as how would I have a conversation with them while sitting on the living room couch and explaining in terms they can understand what it is I do and what's important about it. And bear in mind, um, at the same time, I... I keep foremost in my mind the fact that these are intelligent lay people who are specialists in their own right in whatever field, you know, because I'm thinking here in general of everybody's grandparents, they may be doctors, lawyers, nurses, financiers, homemakers, whatever, but you know, they're, they're smart people. And so you don't dumb it down. You just put it in terms that they can understand. And, and here's, I think the crux of it, you make it so it's interesting. And the minute you start seeing their eyes glaze over, which is <laughs> going to happen, no matter how excited you are, at some point, you know you're about to lose them. And then you either, I don't know, you you change topics slightly, you say, oh, and there's something else, or, or you turn the tables and you say to them, so what was it that was interesting to you about this? And why did you ask me about this? How did you come up with that question? You know, you're not just being nice and trying to fill up a Saturday or Sunday afternoon. So what motivated you to ask me? So I try to put myself in their shoes. Now, failing that, the other thing that I do, uh, and this is something that we can all do, those who are uh, teaching, whether it's teaching at a university or community college or synagogue or Sunday school or whatever, you know, this is the thing that we all do that most people don't realize is, is that we're all teachers all the time. We're teaching, we're teaching who often we don't even realize we're teaching. And we automatically adjust to our audience. Again, when you see the eyes glazing over or in, uh, you know, uncomprehension or whatever. And so we do adjust. And so I try to do in my writing the same things that I do when I'm lecturing, you know, and, and when you're lecturing, you know, you actually, you know, when you're losing your audience, not just with the eyes glazing over, but if you lose yourself in your sentence, right, you've got too many semicolons, you've got too many parentheticals, you're tripping over yourself. That's when you need to stop and make it just a little bit more comprehensible. And for me, uh, in terms of writing, that means 
um, cutting each of my sentences into thirds. You know, every time I see a semicolon, I'm like, no, 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 let me put a period and let me start a new sentence. So, but um, it's good you don't have a German writing style then. I was just going to bring up German. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And in fact, when I was an undergraduate, that was the single most um, common comment I got on my term papers were, could you make this sentence any longer? I don't think so. So, I mean, I know the record is like a page and a half for a single sentence, but that wasn't quite that bad. But yeah, so you have to cut it back. Now, the second part that you asked about why have people struggled to make archaeology appealing, I think in part it's because of our training that we're taught to be as scientific as possible and to be as jargon laden. And often, I don't know about you, but I was trying to sound smart in my younger days. And let me use a big word instead of a smaller word. And let me throw as much jargon at them, mm-hmm. see if I can lose them. You know, if they don't understand <laughs> it, at least they'll think you know, I was. Uh, obfuscate for effectiveness. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Because part of the problem is that if the if you're writing clearly, even you can see your flaws in logic and you're like, wait, that doesn't work. So, yeah, so you can obfuscate. So nobody realizes you're actually BS all the way way home. So um, I think a lot of people never got out of that and they are trained to write technically. Uh, And in fact, if you, if you do write so that you're readable, that you frequently get dinged for, you know, in referees reports, Mm -hmm. the peer reviews, and they're like, I don't know, this is too approachable, must not be, you know, that good. So I think people do struggle with it for a number of reasons. But I also think that a lot of the reasons are, are not valid. I think people can actually do this um, more so than they think they can. They just don't let themselves do it. They're afraid to do it. Um, They say, I can't write that way until I have tenure. I won't be taken seriously, you know, whatever. But I think things are changing, and they have Mm -hmm. been changing. Uh, And I see this all the time now, but especially because, I mean, let's keep with with the tenure stream idea. Now things like blogs are counting towards tenure uh, and um, uh, appeal to a popular audience is a factor in tenure. So we're trying to get beyond the the ivory hall, the ivy halls, as it were. So I would encourage things. And, and in fact, what you all are doing, I think, fits perfectly into it. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is in terms of like ASOR and AIA, and AAA and SAA, it's all the professional organizations. They all have in their code, their code of professional conduct that we're expected to put things out to the general public. So it's not like we're, you know, falling down on being our, our fulfilling our academic mission. This is part of our academic mission, which is why I think more people need to be doing this. And I think it's definitely improved, and it's refreshing to hear your analysis sort of track with that. I was also reminded, as you were talking there, about um, an issue I find in my own teaching, and when I was starting my seventh year here in a week or whatever, um, you know, you're trained to be a specialist, but the jobs are generalists, right? I get, I, my PhD is in ancient Egypt. I get to cover Egypt for two weeks because I cheat, and I make it longer than everyone else does in Civ, and then it's 
off to everything else down up to the Renaissance. You know, like you have to be able to be a generalist in most of the teaching gigs when you're in those first few years. And I think it's helped me be able to, to write that way too, because I have to practice so much lecturing that way to students who come in with very little knowledge. And I'm not trying to blame them. It's just where we're at. And so I think these things are syncing up. And with the, the blogs and the vlogs, you know, we're, we have to kind of get out there and do that. Otherwise, we'll lose the fight for, for the truth in, in the court of public opinion because these popular sources do gain a following. And oftentimes, their, you know, their quality can be suspect. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I agree with everything you said. For for me, for my case would be teaching ancient Greek history, and and I cheat by putting in two weeks on the Aegean Bronze Age and saying you, <laughs> you can't understand you can't understand later Greek history unless you know the Bronze Age. And, and yet there are any number of people out there are saying actually yeah you can you don't need the Bronze, Age. but you do you do. But it was when I was teaching Western Civ. Um, that was my first job. I was teaching at Fresno City College and was teaching Western civilization back to back to back. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I, who really knew nothing more than the late Bronze Age, was being asked to teach Roman and beyond. I mean, it went right up to the Renaissance. And then one day they said, can you teach the second half of Western Civ? And I said, well, when does that go up to? And they said, well, the present, of course. <laughs> and I'm like, so wait, you want me to go from Neolithic up to 1990? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, you pay me. And boy, that's when, like you said, that's when I learned that you can't just focus on your own specialty. And you're right. We we should be so lucky to be hired within our disciplines. None of us are. And we all are generalists. You're quite right. So, And I just want to highlight for our listeners here, you're getting a little um, kind of extra secret view of the academic world here that, you know, you, you see these these names, these big scholars and say, oh, they're such specialists. Well, y- yes, but they're also generalists who are basically a week ahead of you in some things. And so, you know, you don't always know that, but but we, you know, we're not all-knowing. Uh, we, we try to come off as, as that perhaps sometimes, but uh, it, it is, you know, it, it's the reality. You know, we, 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 there are these pulls and tensions. And, you know, and Eric, it, it comes back for me in my mind for a second. I wanted to take a step back with your whole approach and making things accessible for people, whether it's teaching or, a, you know, w- it sounded like this was kind of a process that you evolved through from, you know, probably your early days of writing in a very kind of trying to sound as smart as possible and be as academic as possible to, hey, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't really impacting anyone, but maybe a few people that are, are doing this. And so were there any kind of major milestones in your kind of process where you transitioned to making um, your research, you know, more accessible, even more interesting to the broader public? Or was it something that was always kind of there for you and it just ultimately you had the opportunities to to bring it out and go down that path? Yeah, good question. It was actually kind of both in a way. Um, it was very much a transition and a transformation. And I can I can see looking through the earlier books how I was kind of evolving. But um, there was also always kind of the desire I mean, um, 1177, which came out, what, seven years ago, I had actually been asking colleagues 
like 15 years ago, hey, should I take my Sailing the Wine Dark Sea, which was a purely academic publication back in 1994. I said, should I take that and um, either just update it, uh, which I, I did for the academics, or should I popularize it and pull the stories out and, and tell it for the larger audience? And um, I actually, the original feedback I got was, no, don't do that. Nobody's going to be interested. But then <laughs> when Rob Tempio asked me to do almost exactly that, I thought, hey, here's my, here's my chance. But in the meantime, what had happened very simply was that I had been approached by a couple different publishers to write different books, um, which were aimed at the general public. So, for instance, uh, there was one book from Eden to Exile, which uh, some of your listeners may know about, Unraveling Mysteries of the Bible. And that came out of when I was a consultant for a series on National Geographic called I think there's two different versions. One's called Mysteries of the Bible and one's called Science of the Bible. And it was like 2005, 2006. And at the end of it, where I had been a consultant for all six shows and had appeared in a couple, I said to the producers, hey, you know, you need a book that your viewers can go to if they want to know more about all of these topics. And they looked at me, they said, that's a fabulous idea. Do you know anybody who could do it? <laughs> I have an idea. <laughs> I kind of looked at him. I said, yeah, I have an idea of who could do it. Yeah. And so that was one of my first forays into trying to write for, you know, the grandparents. And there I really dealt head on with a lot of the misconceptions that are out there because I was dealing with, you know, where's Noah's Ark? Where's the Ark of the Covenant? Where's the Garden of Eden? Did Joshua actually capture Jericho? You know, those kinds of things. Uh, but then as time went on, too, I had other opportunities. Like Oxford University Press asked me to write a very short introduction to biblical archaeology. Now, can you imagine writing a book on biblical archaeology and being told you can't write more than 35,000 words? You know, which to some sounds like a lot, but, you know, when a normal, a usual book is 100,000 words, that that's a third of it. Uh, and that was where my favorite story was. I turned in the first manuscript and my editor there uh, sent it back to me and said, yeah, it's a good start. You need to rewrite and you need to get rid of all the F words. And I'm like, F words? What are you talking about? There's no F words in there. And she's like, oh, um, we mean famous. Take out every time you say famous archaeologist, famous site, famous discovery. I'm like, oh, that F word. <laughs> anyway, so um, one thing led to another. And what I found, though, and I will say this for the academic listeners as well, is uh, for one thing, to keep my, shall we say, street cred for every popular thing I put out, I try to put out two academic articles with my colleagues like on Cabri or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and it's worked pretty well, but I have found that learning how to write for the public and learning to write in a, uh, an accessible way has spilled over into the academic articles so that I usually end up being the editor for our multi-authored ones and just saying, I have no idea what you're saying in this paragraph. And if I don't understand it, then 
you know, even the most famous archaeologist isn't going to stand it. So <laughs> good use um, of the F word there. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, that editor's listening. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's ended up making the academic writing more accessible also. And I see no reason why you can't do that. So I think mm-hmm. everything, uh, everybody benefits, but it wasn't something that I sat down one day and said, okay, now I'm going to write for a popular audience and I'm going to change my writing style. It just kind of transformed. Uh, and then it turned out that I'm reasonably decent at it, I think. So, and I enjoy it more importantly, I wouldn't do it if I didn't like it. And I think that's the other secret is I write about things that I enjoy that interest me. And my rule of thumb has always been, in writing and in the classroom, that if it's boring to me, it's going to be boring to them. So I will hack and slash my lectures in the classroom while I'm writing them up saying, oh, my God, this is boring. I don't know how I can present it. And I'm like, well, you know what? I don't have to present it. There's so much stuff out there. Let me present. If not only interesting stuff at least present the boring stuff in an interesting way right and mm-hmm. you can always you can always do that so anyway so that works for lecturing and writing and that's why i think the teaching and the writing go hand in hand because i bring the research into my teaching and then i bring the teaching into the research so you know and anybody who has to write and teach for a living as as we all do i mean wouldn't it be fun to dig 12 months out of the year, that'd be great. But, you know, we have to earn a paycheck for the other nine months. So anyway, so everything informs. And I I do think we have a role with all the misinformation that's out there. It's actually, we need to do that. We need to counter the misinformation. Yeah. And and I think you're doing a great job doing that because, I mean, particularly, I think in in this broader field, we we are so fortunate that, you know, we deal with the ancient Near East, Israel, the Bible, Egypt. These are all things that the general population just have a romance with and love and are fascinated by. And whether it's, you know, for religious reasons, secular reasons, alien reasons, who knows, you know, there's something that people want to know about this. And so there is a a ready and willing audience out there that wants to, to soak it up. And so we need people that are providing good information for them. And so, you know, you're, you're one resource and, you know, Mark, I know you have a a question about this. I'm going to turn it over to you so you can just fire it off to him because I think it's a really important one for the listeners to hear. Yeah. So, um, we talked about kind of combating the blog vlog scene already, but how do you, you know, so like with 1177, you wrote a book that appealed to a whole bunch of people, obviously this is a smash hit. Um, but it's still robustly researched, highly regarded, I think, among scholars. Uh, you kind of alluded to how you, you got from, you know, selling the wine dark sea to that. Um, but how do you try to kind of walk that fine line with people who have an interest who aren't specialists but want to learn more about the cultures of the Bible and, and where should they get started? I think sometimes we're sort of intimidated, or people can be, by the wealth of the information. Or I'm thinking of people that I know that are pastors who, who oh, well, if I, if I read the archaeology, it'll, you know, I won't understand it or something like that. How do you try to bring that to them, not just in publication, but even in just conversation and, and trying to do it in a relational way, too? 
Right. So, so you've got a million questions embedded in there. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That's all right. Let me try and and um, we're we're putting uh, you to the. You know, we're trying to see how here. how good you are here today. So. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Right. 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 So, <laughs> so basically, what would you tell people who are interested but don't know where to begin and are maybe just intimidated? Right. Okay. So yeah. uh, I, let me get to that. But I can actually walk through. I think what you just asked. Because first of all, you guys are uh, on the front lines right now. Um, no matter what I do, no matter what I write, no matter what anybody writes, um, if we don't get the word out, then it won't make any sense for us to have written it. So starting a blog, starting a vlog, starting all of that, and asking the proper people, which you all know them, Mm -hmm. you know that anything that's said on this broadcast is hopefully going to be you know, 99% accurate. And that's why, like, after I wrote 1177, I was told, well, that's just the beginning. Now you have to go out and popularize it and plug it. And I was like, well, I'm not really comfortable with that. And they're like, well, get comfortable. <laughs> and so if people ask you, can you appear on their radio show? Can you be interviewed? Can you be on their blog? You answer yes. I mean, you do a little research and you don't, you try not to appear the more fringy ones. But <laughs> even then, some of those are the people that have the audience that I would love to reach. So um, that is one way to combat, I think, all the misinformation that's out there, which is very much growing in popularity. Mm -hmm. But um, I also have to be aware, too, that doing something like with you guys is I think the best way to do it because I've tried to combat by replying directly to tweets and to reviews on Amazon. And it always backfires because <laughs> the people that are putting out the, the misinformation on Twitter and such are also firmly convinced that they're correct and that they know more than anybody uh, who happens to have gone to school for 15 years and might know something about it doesn't matter. I mean, this is both the blessing and the curse of the Internet is that suddenly people whose voice could not be heard is now being heard. And for some, that's great. And for others, it's like, oh, boy, no, go crawl back in your hole. So it, it hasn't worked. I tried to address them directly. And now it's indirect through this. So. Uh, one of the things I said a couple of years ago, and I think it was the keynote address at ASTOR, I said, let's overwhelm them with real information. Let's get all the stuff out. Uh, and that's where, like, what you're doing is the way to do it. Uh, and one thing that I would suggest, too, you asked about pastors, and I would uh, add in rabbis and imams mm -hmm. and others that are wondering what to read, where to go. Uh, I don't know if you're planning this, or maybe you already have it, but if you've got a website that goes with what we're doing today, you are the place for for posts on recommended reading. Uh, and I've seen that actually on, on other blogs and vlogs where they they say, and I see this especially on, on YouTube where they've got a video um, interview, but also just on regular websites. If you liked our conversation today, here are some suggestions for further reading. And you could easily do that. And 
that was where I suggested kind of tongue in cheek at one point that we give kind of the good housekeeping seal of approval and say, <laughs> this website, you can trust what's on it. And, but I know that that gets into difficulties too. But so I would say, if you're not already doing that, that would be step one and just, and we can do that today. If you wish, after it's yep. over, send us mm-hmm. a list of five things that you think people should read, you know, that, that you really liked or were influential, you know, and of course I'll send you five things that all have my name on them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that would be useful. And in fact, we just did exactly that. Rachel Halote and I taught for biblical archeology span society, a seminar for a week just now, And we just finished compiling yesterday um, uh, a list of books that we had mentioned during our lectures and suggestions for further reading. And that will be sent out to the participants. But I could easily see you guys doing something like that as well. And it'll start kind of slowly, but the word will get out there. Uh, and, And I know from the seminar that we just did that was last week that we had pastors and rabbis and others there, and they were saying, what do I tell my congregants to read if somebody asks me, like, where is the Ark of the Covenants? You know, what what do I tell them to, to read? So, um, I, I think that, that that's one way to go. Um, the other, and I'm still impacting all of your question here. Before, So, Eric, can I interrupt for one second, just while we're on this topic? So, we do. I'm just going to give the plug right now. We'll come back to it again. But we do have a website. It's onscript.study slash biblical world. And not only will you, f- you can find the recording, but we do send up links. And so, we're going to put links to... A number of your books, and so you know, hopefully people will go out and buy them. Episode description, yep. And so we'll we'll put some additional readings, but of course everything is going to have your name on it. So you know, hopefully this will be only the best. Yes, um, but there's another initiative as well, just to just to let you know that our some of our listeners may have listened to, and it's a an, another episode we did with uh, Bob Cargill from Iowa University, and the University of Iowa is going to start just kind of this repository of resources. Uh, and so it's something to keep an eye out for, uh, where you know hopefully this is going to start gaining some traction by the end of the year, and people who are interested in getting good resources and details, this will also be another place they can they can do that. So I just wanted to put that on on your radar, along with any of our listeners out there. So sorry, I, I'll let you go back to addressing the next. Yeah. It's great too because this is also what we need for students when when we've got students and we're teaching a class on ancient Israel or you know New Testament or whatever. And you can say, here's a website that's got all these links and you can trust where it sends you. So that's great. I'm glad that that you're doing that and that Bob is going to do that as well. It's good to hear you back up what we're already doing. Just, you know, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> yes, glad to know we're not one of the fringe ones, hopefully. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. No, but uh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, I've gotten some interesting requests over the years. And generally I say, sure, if I can, um, thinking that it's really, it's not about me selling books because I'm not sure there's a direct correlation, but that I get to tell people about for instance, the late Bronze Age or whatever it might be, uh, and reach people that might not be predisposed to reading, for example, but that learn better by listening or by viewing or whatever. So I would say whatever medium gets 
to people. So writing a book like 1177 is, is really just the first step because mm-hmm. then everything comes after that. And I know, for instance, that a number of my lectures were recorded and put up on, on YouTube. And uh, a lot of them, I mean, one of them has been seen like 5 million times. I don't know why. Um, I don't know if it's driven the sales of the book, but there are a lot of people I can see in the comments that don't realize there's a book that just think there's the lecture. And and that's okay because I was able to tell them a bit about the late Bronze Age at that time. So, you know, whatever it takes, basically. Um, My goal is to teach people about the late Bronze Age and why it's the most fascinating period in ancient history, uh, period. And, and, you know, and we'll go from there. So, so uh, other people should do the same for the period of history that they're convinced is actually the most interesting. Well, I think that raises a really good point. And, you know, I, you know, I'm going to say Iron Age myself, but, you know, I'll, you're the guest, so I won't, uh, I won't labor the point. <laughs> well, I need to pick your brains, actually, because I have been asked to write the sequel, and the sequel is Iron Age. So oh. I'm taking it for the next 400 years. I'm going 1176 to 776. I'm going to end uh. with the Olympics. And so... I am, I would say, knee-deep or waist-high or (laughs) neck-high in the Iron Age at the moment. And I have to tell you, it's pretty interesting, too. There's some, you know, um, apparently some interesting things happen during the Iron Age. Just a couple. Just a couple, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just as long as we're united against the people who think it's the Middle Ages, and I'm happy. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting, though, Eric, you mentioned, you know, the late Bronze Age, and it is this age of internationalism, which I think is one of these, I mean, at least in my mind, it's one of the most interesting aspects of of that whole period and the way that these, you know, these major empires kind of coming together, working against each other, but at the same time, underneath all the political intrigue, you have the economic world that is just you know, flourishing. And I mean, there's a lot of parallels today as well. And it's this, you know, I think you do a really great job in so much your writing. And, you know, I'll come back to Megiddo in, in a second, but you do a really great job of finding these stories, which which you kind of mentioned, you know, there's they're stories to be told. And it, it's how we, you know, get people engaged and make it accessible as well. And there's, you know, so many connections between antiquity and today that people just, I don't think necessarily realize that are really fascinating. And you come at it from multiple approaches that I think open it up to people that aren't necessarily just interested in archaeology or just interested in the classical world or just interested in the biblical world. And so there's this whole mishmash of things that you, I think, do a really great job of connecting them uh, together across time in a way that you know, is really helpful. And just to, to illustrate, you know, the significance of why that's important, you know, there was an article in The Onion a number of years back, and it talks about a historian giving a press conference that said, historian makes landscape discovery that knowing about the past makes us, or keeps us from making the same mistakes. And everyone in the audience was blown away. And, you know, it's this, obviously, if you don't know what The Onion is, it's this satirical newspaper. And so it's a pretty, <laughs> a pretty straightforward thing that, yeah, as we understand the past and know, you know, we can hopefully not make some of the mistakes or learn from that. But we also see these parallels across time, even amongst our differences today. So um, I think that's really great. And I don't know if there's anything that, you know, you want to add as to, you know, what my rambling comment was about, feel free. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, definitely. And actually, it calls to mind just with the onion. I was looking yesterday, and 
the meme popped up again about archaeologists find ancient race of skeleton people. Like, yeah, <laughs> yes. that's the classic one. That's yeah. another good one. Yes. <laughs> that's another good one, sure. <laughs> um, but, well, thank you for your kind words. But I can, what I can say is this comes from teaching. This comes from trying to make stuff relevant to the students, where most of them are in there for what we call GPAC requirements, right? Gen ed. They're not in there because mm-hmm. they actually want or like ancient history, they're in there because it fulfills a requirement that they need to graduate from college. So part of the challenge is how to make it interesting for them and how to make it relevant. And so the biggest challenge I ever faced was when I was doing that second half of Western Civ. And I found myself like teaching about the Beatles, meaning the rock band, not, not the insects. <laughs> but And... When I was teaching the second half, I was seeing all the parallels to the first half. And I was like, wow, you know, like when Charles Martel fights the battle, it's very much like Akhenaten fighting 2,000 years earlier. And let me show you the two. And so I ended up comparing and contrasting a lot of things and seeing the links and seeing how history either repeats itself or rhymes. And that was where I came up with things like, you know, they had really nasty divorces in antiquity, you know, just like today. And they had embassies and they had economic embargoes. So it was really coming from trying to make it relevant and make them understand today and care about it. And then it just kind of spelled over when I was writing the stories about the books, because One of the things that I always ask myself, even today, um, not just in teaching, but in writing, is why should anybody but me give a hoot about this? Why should they care? Right? They could be doing anything else but reading whatever I've written. So why should they care about what I'm writing? And so every time I do it, and I do it for the scholarly writing today too, is why you know, why should you care? There's a million things that you guys could be reading. And you're usually probably not going to read most of what I write. You're going to read the introduction and the conclusion. And then if it's of use, you'll go into the middle part with all the data. <laughs> but um, I frequently tell my students writing research papers that, that journalists know what they're doing, obviously, but they start with the lead. You have to grab the reader with your first paragraph, um, let alone your first sentence. And um, if you haven't captured the reader by the end of the first or the second page, you've lost them. So not that it needs to be sensational, not at all. Um, Just make it interesting enough and give it enough of a hook that they're like, oh, let me keep reading here. So I think that was one of the, I'm not sure I would say secrets to 1177, but what I did was research it enough that I knew what I was saying was accurate and wouldn't be ripped apart by my colleagues like you guys, um, but at the same time made it interesting enough that I could get my students and the grandparents to keep turning the pages. Um, because one of the things that I'm, I'm as concerned about with being accessible is being accurate. And so like for this Iron Age book that I'm working on now, 
because it's not my specialty. I'm, you know, I'm out of my wheelhouse, as they say, <laughs> right? I'm most comfortable up to 1200 BC and anything after that. I'm like, well, I can teach it, but I'm not a specialist. I need to make certain that what I'm writing is accurate first and foremost. And so that's where I am right now in writing that book. I have basically, well, about two thirds of a history book, which is as dull and dry as it could possibly be <laughs> with a footnote at the end of every sentence and a million citations. But I know that what I've written is accurate and that you, Kyle, and you, Mark, will not rip it to shreds. So you'll go, oh, yeah, that's a bit debated, but I see in his footnote that he's got the various people, and yeah, okay, fine. Once I've gotten that version, and I know I'm accurate and correct, I'm then going to tilt it, and so that I write the stories about it, that I pull the stories out of it, and there is only one footnote per paragraph instead of per sentence. And I cut it down so it's just the most important ones uh, and so on. But so I'm always very nervous about not being accurate in terms of what I'm saying. So I will sacrifice accessibility in favor of accuracy but it really worked well when they both come together. So it's really nice to find out, like, you know, what the general public thinks about what I publish. But, of course, what I go to first and foremost is the scathing reviews by my colleagues. And, you know, what did they agree with? What did they disagree with? And, in fact, when I was putting together the second edition of 1177, which just came out, this past February, Go by. I had in front of me <laughs> all of the scathing critiques by my colleagues. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you were right. Yeah, I need to do this. I need to tweak this. And, oh, wow, I can't believe I left that out uh, and so on. And so when I was doing the second edition, I paid very close attention to the criticisms of the first one. And so um, anyway, so I think accuracy um Accuracy should not be sacrificed for accessibility. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I've really pushed back strongly on some of my publishers that have said, oh, yeah, we don't do footnotes. I'm like, you have to do footnotes because these are not my original ideas. I am standing on the shoulders of those mm -hmm. who have come before me. You know, I could not have written 1177 or um, Three Stones Make a Wall or even biblical archaeology, a very short introduction. They're all synthetic works. I couldn't have done them without what you guys have published and others. So, uh, and credit needs to go where credit is due. So I, I think 1177, I think a third of the book is footnotes and bibliography. And, and I'm okay with that. You know, if it were up to me, it would have been, that part would have been longer. So, <laughs> Anyway, so I'm very concerned with um, how my colleagues take it, but I'm also concerned with does it get the message across to the general public? So it's a fine line to walk, as you say, mm -hmm. uh, and it can be difficult. It can be a challenge, but it's also fun and rewarding when it works. And it must be nice now in those conversations with editors and publishers that you can say, look, 1177 was proof that this can work without people 
being too intimidated by it, let's give the audience some credit too, right? I mean, I would certainly be using that if I were in your shoes because it did very well. And like you said, a ton of it was footnotes. So people can handle it as long as it's not every single sentence, like you said. Exactly. And the, the beautiful thing about, you know, footnotes is, um, or rather I should say end notes. Let's make them end notes and get them out of the way a little bit because those who are interested can flip to the back of the book and look it up. And those who aren't interested can just keep reading. But, you know, if you put a footnote at the bottom of the page, which is where a footnote's supposed to go, you, you can end up taking the entire page with the footnote. So I, I do say include them, but include them as endnotes and get them at the back. So, but, and that way you can use it as a textbook or just as a pleasure reading book or, or whatever. Um, and I do tend to use now 1177. I use it in my class on late bronze age because it, it is, I think a decent introduction, but we could do this with more of them as well. Well, and I just want to add one thing for some of our listeners that this is the kind of thing that you should be looking for when you are interested in looking for a good resource that, you know, you could find, I mean, there are good scholars out there that write popular books and maybe don't add any kind of footnotes or endnotes and just tell the story. But, you know, a lot of times that's you know, when you're getting something like that, it's not going to be the greatest resource. And so something like what Eric is describing is, is something you should consider as you're looking, you know, for a topic and so, okay, here's a book that's accessible, but oh, look, it is actually well-researched. Here's additional sources if I want to go further. And so it's a mark of um, not only a, a a work that you can trust, so to speak, um, but it's, you know, it's really something that shows that, okay, this work is going to be uh, bridging the gap between what the academic world is doing and and what I'm really interested in. And it's the kind of work that you should look for as opposed to some of the other kinds of works out there that may be not researched at all and just the ideas of somebody who is either taking someone else's ideas or twisting and saying whatever they think they should say. So just wanted to you know draw that really out explicitly for some of our listeners who are interested in going further. I think we can do the same thing with documentaries. I mean, my students will ask occasionally about this documentary or that, especially when they find out that I work with the Exodus some. And I usually tell them, hey, some of these are good, some are not. Of course, you're not going to know right off the bat where you're at in your you know, education. But once they stop talking to experts in the video, that's your clue to dip out. Because now they're going off the deep end. It's the same thing. That Where did the research go? We can do this with, with the video sources, too. Yeah, absolutely, and I would I would agree with that with both books and with um, videos and documentaries. <clears throat> One of the things that I do, I when I'm putting a citation in an endnote, I'm doing it for two reasons. One, in case I'm talking about something that may be quite debatable, and that somebody reading it might go, "Huh," like let's say I say the Exodus is more likely to have taken place in about 1250 BCE than 1450. Footnote. I put the footnote in part to show you where I'm coming from, that I'm not just making it up at a whole plot. But I also am putting in things that are basically for further reading, that if a reader goes, oh, that's an interesting point. I wonder how we figured that out. Oh, let me go to the end note. Ah, then to the bibliography. Oh, let me go read that book and that will tell me. So it's mostly a matter of covering my own rear end at the <laughs> same time as letting readers know where they can go for further information. But it's also, the third thing is to give, as I mentioned earlier, give credit where credit's due. 
And that's my main beef with a lot of these YouTube videos is like there are a million out there on the the Sea Peoples and the Late Bronze Age now that you can watch. Um, And anything that came out before 2014, I'm like, fine. But anything that came out after 2014, I'm like, look, I know if you've read 1177 and you're now doing an hour long documentary and I'm watching it. And I can see point by point by point that you've just gone through my book. And then at the end, you don't give me credit. At the end, you don't say, for further reading, go read this. Or a lot of this is based on, or I would like to thank. I mean, it really doesn't hurt you to say that. And then you've got people like me going, hey, you basically just stole what I wrote and presented it as your own, which is not cool. But I'm also not going to come after you. I mean, this is ridiculous. Um, but, uh, they're not doing their, their listeners or viewers any favors because they're then going to log off and go, well, where can I read about this? If I want to know more, fortunately, in a lot of those cases, somebody has put in the comments, oh, if you want to know more, go read this. But this is where, you know, and these are mostly amateurs that are making these, but again, you know, it's word of caution to them give credit. If you read something, you know, by, by any of you guys or by me or somebody else, and it was useful, it doesn't hurt to put it in the credits at the end and go from there. So, so that's what I try and do, right? Citations to show you where I got the stuff, citations to show you where you can go to read more and citations that give credit for it. Yeah. And I think that's a really important thing too, particularly because, you know, I've seen some of these things as well, and there are certain, um, you know, individuals that are coming at some of this, you know, material from a more religious perspective and have a very clear bias of how they want to portray things and portray them as their truth, the way they see it. And, you know, unfortunately in today's world, there is this wariness of the academic world, us liberal academics, we're going to destroy your faith and turn you into hippies and all these other things. And, you know, so you know, there's, okay, I'm going to, you know, if one of these people out there, I'm going to use what's out there, but I'm not going to give the credit because I don't want people disassociating from me if they don't agree with it. And so, you know, on the one hand, I word of caution to those people as you did, you know, let's, let's break that divide down because, you know, the academic world is not here to destroy, you know, faith or, or specific viewpoints, but we're here to constantly grow the knowledge of what we know about the Near East, about history, and it's always evolving. And so do we get it right 100% of the time? Well, no, but because we don't have all the information. And with the turn of a shovel, maybe a, a you know a 100-year-old theory is going to change. And so there's a needs to be a recognition and a dialogue between the popular world and the academic world, between the religious and the secular. And, you know, it's not about, you know, you know, alienating anyone or challenging per se beliefs, because so much, particularly from a faith perspective, so much of what we're dealing with, you know, is, you know, the faith issue is beyond what we can actually deal with in the archaeology. And so there, there's two levels of interaction there to begin with. And, you know, they're really not as challenging or they don't challenge each other in the way that a lot of people, unfortunately, think they do. Yeah, I think mostly we contextualize. And occasionally we have to challenge like a, a translation that maybe is off or a tradition that just doesn't work. Um, but it's mostly contextualizing, which is, I hope, mostly neutral to people. But I do think there is that suspicion that drives a lot of the conversation. 
Yeah, one thing that I tried to do in both my little biblical archaeology book and in the longer From Eden to Exile, I started out both by saying, look, biblical archaeologists were not out to prove the Bible. We're not also we're not out to disprove the Bible. We're out to talk about what the cultures were back then and the lands that are covered by the Bible and all of that. But mm-hmm. the common misconception really is that we're either out to disprove the Bible, right? And we're all, as you said, liberal lefties, or we're out to prove the Bible. And the truth is that, that most of us are, are not doing either of them. We're studying this period like we would anything else. But it is fraught with difficulties. And, and as you say, Especially, this is an area where so many people of faith are interested. And that was where, uh, towards the end of From Eden to Exile, I invoked something that our colleague Randy Yunker once wrote. Uh, He's Seventh-day Adventist teaches at Andrews University, and they came up with what they call the Andrews Rules, which is how do you, how do you, deal with it when your profession, namely archaeology, and your faith may seem to be at loggerheads and may seem to contradict each other. And so um, this holds not just for the Seventh-day Adventists, but for anybody who is a believer, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or Islam or or whatever, um, we all have to deal with this, uh, especially those who are Orthodox. Uh, you know, we've got Orthodox Jews that are archaeologists. We've got Orthodox Evangelical Christians. I mean, we've all got to deal with this. Uh, and so these Andrew's rules um, really deal with it, I thought, in a very good way. Don't push the data beyond what they can support. Don't expect archaeology to shore up your faith uh, and, <laughs> and so on. So I was I was trying to deal with exactly that. But a lot of people come at this with, I, I'd say, a great deal of temerity. If I read this, will it shake my faith? And I actually had one of my students told me when For Me into Exile came out, and this was probably about 2008, 2009, um, she said, I gave it to my grandfather to read, and he promptly handed it back unopened and said, I don't read stuff like this. And she said, why not? He says, because I believe what I believe. I don't need to read anything that might caused me to question it. And I'm like, I was crestfallen because he was exactly my target audience. That was exact, not because I wanted to undermine his faith, but that I wanted to show him that some of the, the facts on the archaeology that go with this faith. Uh, and But to be in such a blinkered world, I'm like, oh, no, I really wish you're, can I talk to your grandpa? Can I call him? Can I tell him, don't worry, this won't shake your faith, you know? But um, we are in, a, I would say, a, a, a period and place in archaeology that um, engenders much more feelings than, say, people that might be writing about medieval Europe, for example, mm-hmm. or, or, or writing about Jamestown here in the U.S. People don't get as all head up as my friend would say, about such periods. But, you know, biblical archaeology, biblical studies, that's getting pretty close to people's, in fact, it is people's belief system. So we have a finer tightrope to walk than some other archaeologists, historians, and scholars might have. 
Yeah. And yeah, and it's funny you mentioned that because I remember years back I came to visit Megiddo to kind of, you know, build on what you're saying. And um, it was with our colleague, Bob Cargill. We've been traveling around the Near East and we wandered up to, you were excavating um, around Palace 6000, kind of the northern northern edge of the site. And, yeah, uh, this kind of, you guys came. Yeah, this, visited. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't bring any cookies, unfortunately, but we no, came. No, you did not. No. So. For which I will never forgive you. No, you, people, people, if you ever visit me at a site, you need to bring cookies. Just remember that. <laughs> anyway, so I interrupted, yes. Yes, yeah, so, so we come up to this site and you have this nice big cardboard sign that on one side says Solomon's Palace. And on the other side, it says Ahab's Palace. And depending on who, you know, what group is coming or who you're going to be talking to, you flip it around. Show, well, it comes to this issue of of the interpretation of the archaeology. And again, we're, we're dealing with a specific kind of question, specific type of data. And, you know, we want to remove the faith element, you know, for lack of a better phrase, I guess. And because, you know, there's there's only so much we can do with what, we, what we're doing here. But it... it we always have to interpret it. And, you know, I thought the sign was just, was fantastic because there was this huge debate, which as you know, getting to your Iron Age book is, is going to be fun to deal with, right? Of when do we date some of the archeology span of the early Iron Age and can we connect it to biblical characters or historical characters? And if so, how do we do so? You know, and, and there's any number of other questions that we as archeologists are still figuring out and as I mentioned, you know, it, it's it's always changing. We're always finding new things. And, you know, I forget what the point of my question was. I just want to tell a story, I guess. But it was... Uh... Well, I can I can pick up from it. I, I can pick there up from go. there because, yes, we did have that cardboard sign because forget about the tourists, but the archaeologists that came to visit us, they were always, you know, so I guess you think this is Ahab's palace and not Solomon's. And so we made that in defense. So we, on one side it said, yeah, Solomon's, and on the other side it said Ahab. And we're like, who's coming to visit today? Because we had visitors every day, and we would flip the sign one way or the other. But um, <laughs> along those lines, like people say to me, is there any evidence for David and for Solomon? And, you know, I would say, well, for David now, we've got the Teldon Steely, so that's pretty good. But I always, when I say with Solomon, I, I say kind of what you were just getting at. I say, no, there isn't any evidence for Solomon, archaeologically speaking, yet. And I add in that three-letter word because it could change tomorrow. Right, some dig could come up with an inscription or whatever, uh, and all of our knowledge could change. I mean, before the Teldon Stele that was found in the early 90s, you had all the minimalists saying that David and Solomon didn't exist, period. And then all of a sudden, when Biran and the others found the fragments of Teldon that mentioned Beit David, suddenly you're like, okay, if you have a house of David, there must be a David. So it went out the window. So uh, that's what I say, too. Do we have any evidence for Solomon? No, not yet. But it could change tomorrow. And, you know, that's the beauty of archaeology. You never know what we're going to find. Uh, but one caveat, if there is something like an inscription or an artifact that mentions Solomon, it better come out of a proper excavation <laughs> and have been found with multiple witnesses in a proper context. You know, if it appears on the art market or the antiquities market, I'm going to say, yeah, too good to be true. 
And we've already had any number of those things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, don't bring me just anything. Uh, but if, if somebody, you know, if at Azakah or Abel Beth Makah or somewhere that's digging in the proper time period, find something, I'll be like all over it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so you still need to be very careful of what people claim. But uh, but yeah, I try to teach my students too to ask the right questions of archaeology and expect it to do the right thing. So even if we found Moses was here inscribed on a rock, out of context, you can imagine the reaction. Well, is it that Moses? Moses is a common name. You know, what would it really mean, right? And so we, we have to be realistic with what archaeology can do. So like I talk about like direct physical evidence versus circumstantial or contextual things. So like, yeah, we don't have direct physical evidence for Solomon, but we can take a look at parallels to the temple that's described and get a feel for what the text is telling us it was like, like at the temple at Aindara and things like that. And you just hope people come away with it understanding and having realistic expectations, I think, too. Because I think sometimes they think we're just going to find all this proof everywhere if we would just dig more. Right, right. Though, you know, to be fair, when, when people say, <laughs> can you prove this? We're like, no, we have to dig more. That is true, though. Yeah, we do want to dig more. <laughs> yeah, we want to dig more. Right, exactly. But yeah, so, so, but people do, especially the, the people that are not professionals, they really expect us to be able to hand stuff up on a silver platter. And, and this is where the grandparents come in too. They don't know who to believe. They see mm -hmm. and claim in a book or on the internet or whatever. Uh, and they just don't know who are the professionals and who are not and who you can believe. I mean, that happened just last week where somebody in the Q&A at, at the, the biblical archaeology seminar we were running, somebody said, well, there have been golden chariot wheels found in the Red Sea. <laughs> and I said, uh, oh, and they said, uh, what's your reaction? I said two words, wishful thinking. I'm like, there are no chariot wheels golden or otherwise found in the Red Sea. I can trace that back to Ron Wyatt claiming that. Mm -hmm. And there is a type of coral that does grow in a circular fashion, and it could look like a chariot wheel, but there aren't any. And they're like, well, it's all over the Internet. And I'm like, yeah. And going back to how do you combat claims like that, part of the problem and I actually said this in the preface of the foreword to From Eden to Exile, it's much more fun to read a claim that there are golden chariot wheels in the Red Sea than it is to read me saying, um, no, not true. And so I, I took a line from, I think it was Spiro Agnew, and for you youngsters, he was a vice president of the United States <laughs> at one point. But this is not a U.S. history podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he called, he used, I think he was calling journalists the nattering nabobs of negativism. And, and that's what I sometimes felt like I was, was a nattering nabob of negativism, because you know, people would throw all sorts of things. Well, the Garden of Eden is here. The um, Ark of the Covenant has been found. Uh, we know where Noah's Ark is. And to each, I would go, no, not so much. We don't actually know. Well, it's not so much fun to hear me say no as it is to hear them spin yarns. <laughs> and so that's where, that's really where I think that we need to come up with because, um, 
addressing them directly can have um, not so good consequences. We really need to come at it from the side and to say, yeah, they're saying this, but here's what we know and here's what we're saying. And you can choose to believe them if you wish. It's a free world. But we're saying that ours is more likely. So we put it that way. So that's, again, to come back to this is why what you guys are doing is so important because it gives a platform for the proper stuff to come out. And by proper, I, I mean what we do. It's funny you bring up the uh, the chariot wheels because that was my first taste of one of these kind of discussions. I was a first-year grad student. I, well, actually, I just finished my first year doing an archaeology MA, and I was visiting family, and one of them had purchased a DVD on that topic at church and wanted me to watch it. And I spent the better part of an afternoon trying to explain to this person how off this was. And the only way I eventually won the argument, because this was someone with corporate and business experience, I finally said, do you think your, your loved family member or the guy selling you a $20 DVD is more likely to have a dishonest agenda? And then he said, oh, well, I didn't think about that. I'm like, they, they kind of exploited your enthusiasm to prove this in, you know, proven quotes there. But it's a real problem that we, we do see. And I think it's it's great that we have so many more sources now. And of course, back then, I'm in my, you know, 20s. And I'm sure I flubbed all kinds of ways I could have dealt with it better that I'd like to think is, is improved. But there weren't these kind of podcasts. There weren't good sources that you could go to that you know, educated lay people could really understand. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And I would, I would say also that the, everything is in all flavors and stripes and colors because um, there are some people that are just out there to scam and, mm -hmm. and take advantage. There are others that truly believe what they are saying, even if what they're saying we know is wrong, but they're, you know, they're sure they're right. Uh, and, and that's where, that's where I think we have some headway where we can say, you know, if you truly believe this and, and we think it's wrong, let me at least show you why it's wrong. But, you know, you're never going to persuade a scam artist that what they're doing is wrong because they know it's wrong to begin with. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so we, we've got a couple of different cohorts that we're, that we're dealing with. And I would like to think that the majority of people are, are honest and misinformed than are deliberately trying to swindle people. But you do have some of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the sad thing is, too, that so, you know, should people, you know, when, when they're interested in this, if they come into the kind of more rigorous discussion is they'll find that actually, you know, things are far more nuanced and interesting than I think they even realize. So, you know, whether that comes in, oh, the Noah's Ark, this or that, well, is it you know, where is it? Is it in Turkey? Is it, you know, that's one question. Okay. But there's a whole lot going on in the text that's actually really interesting and brings us into a whole another type of discussion that is even more fascinating. And sometimes I think we just need to convey this reality too, as a part of the discussion. And so, you know, you can say, okay, well, yeah, you, you're wrong. That's just that, that doesn't, you know, there's no evidence to that, but it's to say, okay, well, you know, let's, let's go back to the text or let's see what we have in the archeology span and work through how we, we interpret it and what is actually saying and you know hopefully open up that potential for them to to listen and say ah okay ah i see that hey yeah, you're right actually there is oh, you know uh, you know something far bigger and more more um kind of layered happening here 
Yeah, I would agree. They, they find out that it's more nuanced than they had thought, and that makes it interesting. And I have found, I mean, what do they say? You get farther with, with sugar than with salt or whatever the saying is. <laughs> um, I found that people are more receptive if I don't just dismiss it out of hand, mm-hmm. but say, well, yes, that's possible, but it's not likely. Let me present some evidence that I think is more likely. I mean, upon occasion, when people say to me there are golden chariot wheels, I do respond to wishful thinking. <laughs> I know that there aren't, but um, but for a lot of others, you know, there it, it gets really nuanced and therefore interesting. I mean, if you come at it and and say, well, let me tell you about the flood story uh, and compare it to the the Babylonian version and the Sumerian version and the Akkadian version, and they'll be like, wait, there are three versions before (laughs) the story of Noah and the Bible? I'm like, yeah, isn't that cool? How do you explain that? You know, what do you do with that? And I think they're like, wait a minute, let me me look into that. So, and then you're off and running. Yeah, I love the idea you're, you're sort of advocating here, like turn it into a teaching moment rather than just being combative. There's, I think, definite wisdom there. And even using, you know, a Socratic method. Like, why do you think that, you know, like when you started asking them questions, you can sort of establish well, who's got the knowledge, but gently. <laughs> right. But you, And you do have to be very careful, I've found, by saying, you know, look, I've got a PhD in 15 oh, years, gosh, so I know yeah. what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't, you can't use that argument. And you're also, you have to be ready. You're not going to win every argument. There are going to be people that are at the end of the day going to go, well, yeah, you think that, but I believe what I believe. And you're like, all right, it's a free country. I tried, you know, so you're not going to win every battle. (laughs) Well, Eric, this has been great. We're we're running it toward the end here. Mark, I just wanted to do you want to do you have any other questions you want to toss to Eric here quickly before we wrap up? Uh, no, you get, you got to do the wire rim glasses one though. Yeah. I so to let this go without that. <laughs> that's yours. I that's, leave okay. That to you. So, yeah. So this is, uh, for those who haven't yet, um, read, um, one of Eric's most recent books, Digging Up Megiddo, or uh, sorry, Digging Up Armageddon, right? He goes through and it's this fascinating story of the history of the excavations of the site of Megiddo, where Eric himself worked for many, many years. And it's it's a really just a fun read, number one. It's, it's a fun read, but uh, there, there were a few phrases I noticed as I was reading along about commenting about, you know, archaeologists back in the early 20th century and how they had wire rim glasses and debonair mustaches and all these wonderful things, three-piece suits. And, you know, I think the most important thing that we want to ask you today is, should we bring some of this fashion back? You know, should we start sporting some amazing mustaches? I I think absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So the book was a lot of fun. It's the story. It's the it's the behind the scenes stories of the Chicago excavators at Megiddo. And they were there. 1925 to 39. So in between the two world wars, and it actually ended because of World War II. Um, And what I did, as one Amazon reviewer said, this isn't as much about the archaeology as it is about the gossip of what they were doing (laughs) on the dig. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what it is, because I've got their letters and their diaries. And, you know, some things haven't changed very much on archaeological digs. But the one thing that has changed is they were wearing, especially it was James Henry Breston. I was talking about the founder of the Oriental Institute at Chicago and the guy who got the Megiddo dig started. 
he has these wire rim glasses and a very debonair mustache. <laughs> and um, I totally think for those who can do so, I can't, by the way, I cannot grow a mustache to, to save my life. But those who can um, should definitely go with debonair mustaches. Uh, and they also dug as you mentioned, in three-piece suits, in jacket and tie and vests and natty hats. Um, one guy had the two-toned shoes, and I, I definitely think that, that that should make a comeback among archaeologists. But, you know, then again, we would be forced to sit uh, under a an umbrella <laughs> gin and tonic. I'd pass out in that suit on a dig. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my favorite picture is actually of Sir Arthur Evans at Knossos wearing the three-piece linen suit and um, wearing a pith helmet. And I, I tell my students, those were the days. And so actually about a year ago, two of my students when they were graduating gave me a pith helmet. They're like, you need to wear this on the next dig. And I'm like, yeah, no. And so it's in my office, but I, I won't wear it. But yeah, yeah, we should, um, uh, we should, we should have a contest on the next excavation uh, as to who can grow the most debonair mustache in seven weeks but you know, make it an asor panel <laughs> yeah that would be but of course that that is gender related and you oh, know true we need to figure out something for for everyone else uh, true. including myself who is a mustache uh, challenged shall we say okay. yeah well, Eric, I just want to thank you. This has been a lot of fun. And, you know, I think we could we could just keep keep chatting and chatting and chatting, but our time is up. And so uh, it's been fantastic having you on here. Uh, again, for listeners, what we'll do is in the description on the, the webpage, we'll put up some links for some of Eric's books. If you're interested in going a bit further, uh, we'll also have some additional resources that kind of complement a lot of what he's been doing. And um, yeah, um, Thanks a lot for being here. Uh, Mark, is there anything you want to say to wrap this up? It's been a treat. Thanks so much for joining us and giving us so much of your time. It's been uh, it's been fascinating getting some some of these words of wisdom, and I hope our our listeners resonate with what you're saying as well. And it's not just us that uh, that take away from that. Well, thank you both again for having me on, and uh, please continue doing what you're doing. I mean, in addition to your remarkable teaching and publications that you're both putting out, to do something like this, to shoulder what is now, I would say, front lines work, and making sure that the information is getting out in front of other people uh, that, that need to know. Um, this is, uh, you're doing amazing work, so keep it up. And thank you on, on behalf of all of the rest of us. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Eric. And on script, Biblical World listeners, remember, subscribe, tell your friends, family, anyone that uh, you pass in the street or on the train or anywhere, subscribe, and we'll, have, we'll be back next time with another great uh, discussion. Thanks a lot for listening. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting OnScript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.